We're in Revelation chapter 21 today. And uh, before we start, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time of studying your word. We thank you for this privilege, privilege of opening it, privilege of seeing the end of all things, the privilege, Father, that you've given us in an understanding that in the end it'll all work out right. We just thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. Revelation 21, we have the last, 21, 22, the last two chapters in the Bible and also the glimpse of the eternal state. The eternal state is where we're all going to be someday. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. He said, I saw a new heaven and earth. Um, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And before God created the heaven and the earth, of course, there was nothing but God. Subtract the universe, all that you have is God. He exists alone in and of himself. But he created the heaven and the earth. And there was a problem with that heaven and earth because it fell into corruption. It fell into the bonds of sin, of corruption. God didn't create it that way, but it became that way through man's rebellion and through the rebellion of Satan. We live in a universe that's winding down, a universe that someday the scientists will tell us in a few billion or trillion years will be at a uniform temperature about three degrees above absolute zero. And all life, all, all existence in the universe will stop. At least that's what the scientists tell us if we believe them. But here we see a recreation. This is a recreation of the heavens and the earth. And what happened to these heavens and the earth? Well, in chapter 20, verse 11, it said, From whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This is the disillusion of the universe as we know it. When does this happen? Well, it's going to happen a little over a thousand years from now in the future, at the end of the millennium, when God recreates the universe. He starts all over again. Now, why would he have to start all over again? Well, we're told that in 2 Peter. If you go back to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, it gives us a glimpse of this time. Verse 10, 2 Peter 3.10 but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Now, when you first read that passage, this is where the eschatological systems come in. This is the systems you drag around with you. Because when many people read that, they think, well, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's the rapture. Well, that's not what this verse is talking about. Um, some say the day of the Lord is when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation. He was going to come back as a thief in the night. Well, he uses that in reference to his coming in Matthew 25 and 24, but that's not what this verse is talking about because it relates something that happens when he comes in this time. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The, earth will, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Something cataclysmic happens at this time, and what it is, is the universe disappears back into the nothingness it came from. You'd be interested to know that the term for elements refer to the most basic building blocks of existence. 
Um, it's the biblical term for atoms, neutrons, electrons, protons. If you're into that quarks, whatever you want to call them. And uh, someday that's all going to go away. It's going to be dissolved, it talks about here. And uh, you don't have to worry too much about that because um, when you think about it, what holds existence together now? God does. Christ, the creator, holds things together with his own power right now. And someday he just releases his hold on that and all the universe goes back to the nothingness it came from, but then he will recreate it into a new heaven and a new earth. Peter, though, before he talks about that, makes this statement, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons should you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? What kind of person should you be? The whole question there is, since, all, since everything you touch, see, and have right now will be burned up, how should you live? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I surf these channels and watch these guys, you know, they have these how to become a millionaire shows, you know, telling you how to become a millionaire and get all this money. The whole question is, you know, why? It's going to be burned up someday. The new Porsche that they just bought will someday be rusted piece of junk. The new house will someday be sold in an auction. Nothing lasts. Wayne. Well, there's that verse that says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Store for yourself up treasure where it doesn't get corrupted and lost. But what happens is we're, we're sort of stuck on this life. You know, we like all the things down here. And Peter's saying, you know, it's going to be burned up. If he's going to, if he's going to make a new heaven, a new earth, why does he assign, why did God assign uh, angels to guard uh, the tree of life, the garden of Eden? I, I just envisioned that they okay. would be over the garden of Eden. Was that during the millennial period? No. Um, the tree of life disappears in Genesis chapter 3. And it reappears in Revelation, I think, 22 in heaven. Um, and I think the reason that God sent cherubim there to the tree of... You know, the question is, well, why didn't he just pull it up by its roots and take it to heaven or wherever he's going to store it, you know, until the time he needs it? You know, why in the world does he leave it there? I think he left it there as a visual reminder to Adam and to Eve and to their progeny of the separation. It was a vivid picture of that separation between man... You got cherubim there with flaming swords guarding the entrance to Eden. And when Adam and Eve would come there, they would realize, you know, we can't pass now. We used to be able to walk in the presence of God, but something's happened. And <clears throat> it's a visual reminder of that. Some even said that's where, for example, um, Abel and Cain were to bring their sacrifices. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but, but that, that would be a, a, a good picture. I think it was a picture. A picture that says the way to me is closed because of sin. And the way is reopened fully. Not, in fact, the way is not reopened fully again until we get to Revelation 21 and 22 in which now there is no separation. Where did the cherubim go? 
Where are they in Revelation 21 and 22? If my memory serves me right, they're not mentioned. There's no need to guard the throne anymore. Because now God is in a universe where there is no sin. Um, all the sinners are consigned to the lake of fire forever. That's a place outside of the created order. How do we know that? Well, if God dissolves the heavens and the earth and recreates them, there has to be a place outside of them for the lost to be. Otherwise, Hades would be dissolved and the lake of fire would be dissolved and dissolves the heavens and the earth. So that's a different place. He creates a new heaven and new earth. And he says here in, in 2 Peter 3.13, um, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The problem is this universe has been so tainted by sin that the only thing God can do is dissolve it and start over again, which he does. No, that reminds me back in the Old Testament, in the times when, uh, like I think it's in the book of Joshua, you see it a lot where God tells his people to, when they go through and they get, when they overtake a city, to actually pur purge, like in a purging way, is to actually annihilate the city and burn it up. Mm -hmm. you know, that type of thing. Yeah, th th throughout the Bible, there's these vivid pictures of sin. Sin is so corrupting that you, to... that you, you have to wipe it out. You can't let anything. It's like cancer. You know, if they go in and they get the entire tumor and leave one cell of cancer there, what happens? It yeah, it spreads again. Sin is so corrupting and so pervasive and has so radically corrupted us that the only way for God to really deal with it is to start over. Um, it's corrupted your body. That's why you get a new one, you know that. You know, also you may get some hair and, you know, I might get some hair, I guess. Maybe not, you know, you never know. But that won't matter, you know. I think I told one guy one time, I was joking with him, he was a jokester, and I said, you know, you're so ugly, your only hope is the rapture. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll all be bald in heaven, I don't know. Um, but sin has corrupted the universe. I mean, just totally corrupted it. And so what God does is he erases the current one and makes a new one. And in this new universe, there is no sin. There's no corruption. And here's the thing. There's no possibility for sin. Why did God create the world to start with if he knew it was going to fall into sin? Now, you know, there have been a lot of trees dying on that one. A lot of books written trying to figure that one out. The only way for God to ultimately get rid of sin is to allow it to exist so he can once and for all deal with it. We can't understand the mind of God in its fullness. I mean, we can only, you know, sort of peck around the outsides of his eternal purposes and decrees. But when he created the universe, he knew there would be sin. He knew Satan would rebel. That wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock. 
he, he, it wasn't, you know, scrambling. The Trinity wasn't scrambling trying to figure out what they do now that everything's messed up. It was all part of the plan. But there's also something else part of the plan, that is the recreation. And when it's recreated, there's going to be two kinds of beings in the universe. There are going to be those in heaven and those in the lake of fire. The ones in the lake of fire will never be changed. Um, they wouldn't if they could. They are corrupt. There's no hope of repentance. There's no desire on their part for repentance. And for us in heaven, the great thing is there's no way for us to foul things up. Now, see, I like that. See, God does not only, for the believer, God does not only let you start over, but then he makes it impossible for you to fail again, ultimately. Because if you were able to fail in heaven, it wouldn't be long before heaven was emptied out. But we won't be able to sin. Why is that? Well, our natures are changed. We're changed. And we live in a universe now in which there is no sin. There's no evil. There's no corruption. There's no possibility of corruption. Sin had its chance and failed. And every being in the universe at that time will know that sin had its chance. In heaven, we will know what it was like to be redeemed. We will understand the salvation and the forgiveness that's God's. And we will understand what it is, what sin is, and we will never fall for it. See, one of the things is, I, I doubt very much when Satan fell and led to rebellion, he had any concept of the consequences of that choice. And I'd think Adam and Eve had no concept of the consequences of that choice. None. God removes the consequences someday. God makes all things new. And he says they're interesting, there's no more sea. Why does he put that in there? It's not there for me. It's that, like the sea, it's really, most of the time it's not like smooth. And it's not, you know, we're, you know, unless you're really a lifelong sailor, you really don't like being out here because there's like sometimes, most of the time, it's like it's unsettling, you're uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, you toss and turn, you get tossed and turn, confusion, stuff. Separation. Yeah, that too. Big thing is separation. Does that literally mean there's no oceans? Yeah. There's no more oceans. When you're on the beach, you're close to the <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. you know, you know, thing is, I'll be honest with you, I like going on vacations. But, you know, and for a few years back, Don, I looked at these Hawaiian vacations. But all of them had you spending five or six days on Waikiki Beach. You know, I'm sitting there saying, why am I going to travel across the world to sit on a piece of sand? <laughs> If I'm going to go to Hawaii, I want to see the volcanoes, I want to see the scenery, I don't want to see some stupid beach. I'll go, to, I'll go up here to Lorraine and see the beach, you know. But, uh, I'm just joking. But part of the sea, you know, it was separation. It was, it's that which separated people, nations, continents. One of the interesting things, I have a 
in my family research, I come across a letter written to my great-great-grandmother from a brother in England, 1876. And he writes and says, we'd like to come visit as soon as we can take the railroad. Well, he's in Coventry, England, and she's in Lodi, Ohio. All right. He says, as long as there's a pond to cross, we won't be there. We don't like the water. Well, why is that? Well, think about it. Think how many ships sank between here and, you know, the Titanic. Think of that one. Oh, did you hear the good Titanic joke? Bill, Bill Gates dies and goes to heaven. And the angels are showing him around. And he gets his mansion and, and all that. So it's really great. And, he, and uh, so he's, he's taking a stroll. And he runs in this one guy. And this guy says, you know, he, he says, well, you ought to come see my heaven, my uh, mansion. So Bill Gates goes over. And he's got something that just beats anything that Bill Gates has. Just a you know, big mammoth place and all that stuff. And Bill Gates is a little annoyed by that. So he goes and asks Peter what's going on. And he says, well... He says, you know, here's this guy, he's got this massive mansion, better rewards than I do. What's going on here? And Peter said, well, he was the captain of the Titanic. He says, wait a minute, he's the captain of the Titanic? It's, why, why does the captain of the Titanic get more than... He says, well, you got to understand, uh, the Titanic only crashed once. Windows crashes. <laughs> uh, anyway, so you can figure that one out. Uh, that's a Macintosh joke. There you go. Uh, High-tech <laughs> high humor. Um, but the whole point... The sea is separation. It keeps people apart. There's no sea. Also, the sea in those days represented the great unknown. The depths of the sea were a mysterious place. You've got to admit, until the 20th century, when you could take submarines and that, nobody knew it was on the ocean bottom. You know, most of the time they still don't know in some of the places. But uh, it's a great unknown. That, that, that's all gone. And then he said, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the holy city, the New Jerusalem, the capital of the new heavens and new earth. And I heard a loud voice, and we'll, we'll come back and talk about the New Jerusalem because it describes it starting in verse 9. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 3 is the reversal of all that we lost. No cherubim with flaming swords. No sacrificial altar that you've got to bring a slain animal to get to God. No more gates, no more walls, no more fences, no more veils. We have access to God. And the terms and the words used here refers to an intimate dwelling. It's not like God is up somewhere on a throne and you got to go all this rigmarole to get there. He dwells with us. There's no reason anymore for the cherubim, because we're holy. We're perfect. We're not tainted by any sin. We could enjoy the very presence of God. And the tabernacle is not a separate place where we have to go to. Rather, it is all around us. He is with us. There's no more wall, no more separation. And it's an intimacy 
picture here. Full access to God. Full access. And then it says in verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, sorrow, crying, no more pain. For the former things have passed away. What, what is the root cause of all of those bad things in verse 4? Sin. Sin is gone. And we talked last week, you know, some people say, well, how can you enjoy heaven forever if you know that your mother, your father, your brother is in the lake of fire? How can you do that? Well, God somehow wipes away every tear from your eye. Whether he does that by making you forget, or maybe he does that by making you understand. See, our problem is, right now, we don't really understand everything. We don't understand why God does this. Why does God do that? Why does God allow this and allow that? But someday, there may be a full understanding and a realization that he had a plan all along. I don't know how God wipes away our tears, but he does. He takes them away. And it may be that it says here, the former things have passed away. All the former things that we're used to, we're used to death and pain and suffering, sorrow and crying. That's part of our existence. It's part of our lives, but someday that'll all be gone. Because sin will be gone. Sin brings all these things. God does us, wipes our tears away. And then verse 5, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. This is the ultimate start over again. God starts over with a new universe full of redeemed people who will never sin. There will never be a possibility of rebellion. All the rebels have been dealt with. All the rebels will be forever put in a place where they cannot affect the perfection of the universe. And everything is made new, a new heaven, a new earth, a new city. And the idea of new there is not new in sense of time, it's new in sense of quality, of essence, of what it is. And there's no more decay. Things don't crumble. The new, the new Jerusalem will not have a celestial repair crew. You won't need to repair the streets of gold and repave them. You don't need to fix things up. It'll all be in ultimate perfection. No computers, Macintosh or otherwise. Um, all things are made new. Is that, uh, you said, how does he wipe your tears away your sorrow? You'll have a new mind and a new body. And a new understanding. Yeah, we won't remember all things. We won't spend our eternity remembering all the times we failed God. All the times we maybe did something wrong. We will understand in a new and better and infinitely better way than we do now. And it's hard to understand that sometimes, you know, because we get so caught up in our thinking and that. 
But someday you're going to see things differently. Someday it'll change. I, I hate to say this. I, you can give away your age. But you know what? As I get older, my perspective on things is just a little bit different. You know, you, you just find your... Huh? You find your, you find yourself thinking, you know, you sit there saying, I thought that way when I was 20. What an idiot. I mean, man, I didn't change. And someday we'll have the ultimate change because we'll all understand. That was, uh, you know, Erwin Lutzer was wrapping up his series on the one year after he died. I was listening to it last week. He said a couple of things he was talking about that we probably have. A lot of different things to do. Some might be similar, some might not. He said he felt sorry for undertakers and preachers because they, they may not have jobs that are the same. But he was, he was you know, getting into that. It was pretty interesting uh, as far as what will happen you know, once you're in heaven. One of the questions is, what are you going to do in heaven? I don't know. We'll worship God. I know that. We will enjoy his presence. Well, that sounds boring. Wait a minute. you got a new body. you got a new perspective. And since God is infinite, how long is it going to take you to get to know him? <laughs> Forever. So where's the rub? All right. Um, a place of joy, of peace, of fellowship, of worship. I don't know what all we're going to be doing in heaven. We won't have to go to work. We won't have to punch time clocks. We have a hard time imagining not doing there's no, there's no taxes. Yeah, the IRS is going to... Bart, you, don't worry about the preaching the undertaker. I'd worry about myself if I were you. You know. <laughs> No tax prep up there, you know. We'll have to be doing something. And what we'll be doing is worshiping God, enjoying his presence. And I don't know what tasks he has for us. But it, it'll, be, it'll be the kind of thing that we will have inexpressible joy in doing. It won't be boring. Whatever it is that we are going to do will be something that will bring us fulfillment beyond our ability to understand, even in this life. You going to say something, Dan? Yeah, isn't there that part of the scripture where it talks also about our interaction, our involvement with the angels? It talks about us judging angels. Um, How's that work? Don't know. I think uh, the question on judging angels refers, I think, to possibly our role in the millennial kingdom where we will be rulers with Christ. But in the eternal state, who's there to rule over? But then it talks about reigning with Christ. In the millennium. Not thereafter. Yeah, I mean, who are you going to rule over? Everybody's perfect. What need is there for a governmental structure when everybody's perfect? When everybody owns everything? You know, there's no private, there's no need for probate lawyers or anything like that. You know, there's nobody dying. You know, there's no wills. We're just eliminating all kinds of jobs here, you know. We're just... <laughs> um, I was reading um, the book by Jim Sutherland, and there's a quote in there about you know, lots of just puts in perspective our human view of possessions and things as opposed to the way it is in heaven. Everybody scrambles to collect gold and all the jewels and everything. 
but she said in, in heaven, you know, the people of God have importance in those things, and you seem to be building them to those. And yeah. you mentioned what would happen to the hearts of people to have to drive their car down a road paved in gold. You know? Yeah. It would just, I mean, it's unheard of. You probably would be driving a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> um, you know, even, even the nicest things you have pale and insignificant. It's a whole different way of existence that we're just not connected with. You have to cross over before you go. Yeah, you have to cross. You know, and, and you know, I've often said, you know, we go to funerals and you know, poor, you know, poor Bart got ran over by a car yesterday. You know, and, and you got to understand that if you're given a chance to come back, you what go back there and live with Diane and have to work for a living? Forget it. I'm staying. <laughs> just joking on that one. <laughs> you know, forget it. I'm staying. I don't want to go back to there. <laughs> we have a human mind. We have a human perspective, a perspective that's bounded by time, by possessions, by material things. And in that day, our mind is not bounded by any of that. We've got a new mind, a new way of reviewing reality, a new way of thinking that changes our entire perspective. And God says, right, for these things are true and faithful. Why does he say that? Here's a God who's never lied once in all of history. And he's saying, write these things down because they are true. They're going to happen. And they're faithful. They will happen. I'll make them happen. This is not a maybe he can pull this thing off at the end kind of deal. It's not him getting a home run in the bottom of the ninth to beat Satan. Satan's never had a chance. He's never even been in the ball game. Because God is going to make everything happen. These things are true and faithful. God is true and faithful. He's never lied. He never will lie. He won't lead you on. He won't play games with you. And being faithful means he will always follow through on whatever he tells you. God is faithful. And he said to me, it is done. In verse 6, you have an example of a prophetic past, it's called. It's a fancy Greek term that they like throwing around. The whole idea is that something so certain, even though this event is taking place in the future, it is so certain to happen that they speak of it as being in the past tense. It's just so sure. It's done. What is done? Redemption. The whole redemptive plan is done. I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It's done. Redemption accomplished. See, we're only partway through our redemption at this point. We we have been justified, we have been declared righteous before God, but someday we will be glorified, but then comes the full realization of all that is ours in the eternal state. And he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. What's that? Well, we find that in Revelation 22, the river of life. The water that signifies the, the ever-present 
sustaining life of God. It's a vivid picture because uh, in biblical times, they lived in a desert. They lived where there was no water, and here's a fountain of living water. Water of life. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my people. Who overcomes? Who's the overcomers? The believers. If you're a believer, you're an overcomer. You cannot be a believer and not an overcomer. If you're a believer, you're an overcomer. And why are you an overcomer? Because you, in and of your own power, overcome? No. It's because God won't let you fail. Think about that. If you're a true believer, the faith that you have, God won't let it fail. Because it's not your faith, it's His faith. He won't let you fail. Now, we might fail in a little thing here and a little thing there, but I'm talking about ultimately, when everything is said and done, you cannot fail. Because it's God's power that strengthens us and helps us overcome. And He who overcomes shall inherit what? Everything. There's no private property in heaven. There's no land deeds. There's no private... We get it all. Everything. There's not going to be signs, stay off the gold grass. There's no... Yeah, there's no one-way signs on the streets. We get it all. And I want you to think about that. God not only redeems us, and then he saves us, but he gives us everything. We have as much inheritance as Christ does. We get it all. We get everything. And most of all, it says here, I will be his God and he shall be my son. My son. Not my servant, not my slave, my son. That's the rich understanding of adoption, whereby God takes us and adopts us into his family, and we become, as it says in Romans chapter 8, we become a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus Christ gets, we get. Now, let me ask a question. Is God going to hold back on Christ? He ain't going to hold back on us. We get it all. Jesus said in like 17, John 17, he's praying, I and them, and you and I, we are all one. We're supposed to be all one. How does that fit in? Well, let's talk about um, that they may be one even as we are one. Um, that's not the oneness in terms of deity, because we're not going to become gods. Rather, that's one in terms of our unity and fellowship together. One body, one group, one... Yeah. There's going to be no discord in heaven. There's going to be no abrasive personalities. We're going to be perfect. We're going to enjoy perfect, wonderful fellowship with one another. No 
No idiot drivers on the road. No, none of that stuff. If I, if I die before the rapture, or before the new, well, if I die before the rapture, is my existence in heaven going to be worse than during the eternal state? No. Is it going to improve during the eternal state? Or is it going to stay the same? That's a difficult question. Um, your role will change, but your enjoyment of the eternal state will not. It's not going to be you get to heaven, God says, okay, you know, just hang around a little bit. You're really going to get, you're going to really get the payoff in a little bit. I, I don't think, now, now, in one sense, you're going to improve in the sense that at the rapture, you will receive a glorified body, which you will not have in the meantime. But it's not like you're sitting up, you know, well, I'm really bummed. I wish I had my glorified body. Man, that's a drag up here, you know. I mean, it's not going to be that. <laughs> you're going to, the point is, it's going to be inexpressible and full of joy. You're not going to, yeah, it's, you're not going to have the, here's all the guys that are bummed out. They haven't got their glorified bodies yet or something. It's going to be joy. We're not going to, see, and that's what our, we don't understand. Our entire mode of thinking is different. But when I'm in heaven before the eternal state, will I have some sadness because I would be aware of what's going on? I don't think so. I don't think if you have to sit and look at the face of God, you're going to be sad about anything. And the Bible doesn't tell us much about that, you know. And I think it doesn't. I like the way Vance Havner puts it. He says, you know, sometimes we get a little depressed because the Bible doesn't tell us all about heaven. He said, but you know, if God told us what heaven's really like, it'd be like sit a big chocolate cake in front of a boy and tell him to eat his bowl of spinach. <laughs> you know, um, it's so wonderful. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. I don't think there's going to be any sadness or, or uh, now, now the question is, is there going to be sadness at the judgment seat of Christ when we see what we could have done and didn't? Um, the Bible possibly hints that there may be some sadness. You know, I could have, I could have done more. But on the other hand, there's going to be joy for what we did do. We'll receive a reward. Um, I don't have, you know, it's, that's a that's a tough question to, because it, it really doesn't tell us that much. I don't think we're going to be sad in heaven. You know, and I don't think we're going to need therapists in heaven. Well, there's another occupation you do. You know, no more Christian counseling, um, no more psychology, you know, or anything like that. It's it's a whole. The biggest thing to understand, I guess, is that's a whole different way of thinking such that we can't, it's so different, we can't relate to it here. And, um, you know, like, like for example, our, our entire existence, a lot of our existence, is concerned about ourselves, right? I mean, we got to eat to live, you know, we got to put clothes on, look presentable. In heaven, you're not going to even be thinking about yourself. You're going to be thinking about everybody else. What kind of body are you going to have in heaven? The Bible talks about a spirit body. It's some kind of physical, not a physical, but a, a spiritual existence. But it doesn't have the material body that we have now, the body of matter. Um, you'll be recognizable. You know, you won't be just some glowing blob of something. I mean, I will be able to tell who you are. You know, if you get to heaven before us and we wind up there, we'll be able to look you up. and Yeah, that's John. That, he, I remember him. He looks the same way. 
Dan, you're looking better. You got some hair now, but other than that, you're fine. I mean, we'll be able to pick each other out, but but you know, like Paul says, it's interesting. He says in First Corinthians 15, he says, when you throw a piece of corn into the ground, a, a seed of corn, that bears no resemblance to what ultimately comes up out of the earth. And in the same sense, what we plant, if you want to think about it in a, in a some uh, a gross term, what you plant in a coffin and six feet under the ground, is it anything like what comes out of that? I guess. It, it, he just doesn't tell us all that. Yeah. That was, that was another point that Dr. Russo was talking about. He felt, you know, I'm sure we would recognize each other, but some, of course, we're glorified and completely different. And he went a step further because there were questions about, you know, like a baby. Or, and he felt that, well, God being sovereign, he could transform that baby into maybe where they would actually have grown mm -hmm. and so forth, but he would know. But of course, you know. Nobody knows for sure. Well, I mean, you're not going to have, you know, the celestial nursery throughout eternity with a bunch of babies in there, you know, diapers or anything. No, they're going to be, they're, they're going to be some adult. You know, they're going to, and we're going to, they're going to be recognizable, which I find interesting. Do you ever think, you ever think about that unique ability to recognize people? You know? I mean, even doing my family history, and I got, I, I got a picture from somebody. They had a picture of this, of this little girl. They didn't know who it was. And it looked like from the 1890s or something like that. She was this real, she was probably about like three years old, cutest little girl, everything. You know, in the 1890s dress, and was taken at a professional studio in Lorraine. And I was looking at that picture, and they had some other pictures, and I was playing with them. And I, I put that picture down, I put this other picture down, I looked at them. I said, that little girl is that woman there. And you could tell. You could tell. I tell you what, you could take, I could give you 100 pictures of little kids, two years old, you could pick out my wife every time. Because just the way she smiles, the way, you could tell. You could just tell that's her. Um, I think that's what God's going to do. There's going to be some form, some semblance. You're not going to be a, you know, a twelve-year-old kid saying, "Boy, am I going to be?" You know, have to go through puberty in heaven. You know, kind of thing. You know, no, you'll be grown up. Some say you'll be around thirty. And what about the people that are old and arthritic and can't get around? The point is, the body you carry around here is nothing like what you're going to look like in heaven. Thank goodness, it's not. The intriguing thought that goes along with that is when these babies are. They're not going to be. They're not going to be a blob of protoplasm in a jar on some, you know, shelf in heaven. They're going to be a person, you know. And, and the whole point there. See, here's the thing. You've got the material realm. This, this is this, this is not. This is Alan talking. You've got the material realm that we're part of, and you get, you grow as a baby, and you get old. And you die, and then there's the spirit realm. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about you growing in the spirit realm in the sense of your form or whatever. Could it be that that baby, a physical baby that looks like a little baby, their spirit representation, body, whatever, is what it will be throughout all of eternity, never changing, never growing, or never aging? I don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But that's a possibility. 
And whatever that representation is, is what that person will be in heaven in eternity, regardless of what age or stage of life they die. You know, you're not going to see heaven full of guys in, you know, bent over in wheelchairs and crutches, you know, because they, that's the, they happen to die when they were old, any more than you have three-year-olds that are toddling around heaven because they died when they were three. I think there's going to be some representation of a, uniform age or whatever you want to call it. But the Bible doesn't tell us much about that. It doesn't, see that's the thing, you know, we, we like to fill in all of the details. We want all of the details. And the Bible just doesn't give us that. It doesn't, it hints at some things here, it hints some things there, but the full understanding re remains to be seen. And you just gotta take it for that, I guess. It's going, to be a, it's going to be a kind of existence that, that is beyond our ability to even comprehend. When you think of a paradise now, when people talk about a paradise, you've still got the elements of, of work, of disease, of decay. None of that is, is there. No disease, no death, no decay, no nothing. Eternal perfection. And God is going to be right there with us. But in verse 8, there's an exclusion list. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their park in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are not people who actually do these things. These are people who are characterized by these things. There's, there's a big difference when the Bible talks about this. Every once in a while, I get mad, especially when I put three in the stupid water on number 13. It just ticks me. You know, you get mad. You get angry. But I'm not an angry person by nature. Why? Because somebody transformed me. Um, I've lied in the past year, but I'm not a liar by nature. By the way, you've lied too. You may not realize it, but you did. But by nature, you're not that. These are people, these are the unbelievers who have rejected Christ, and they have been eternally fixed in whatever mode they were in when they lived their life. Eternally fixed. The unbelieving, the abominable, sexually immoral sorcerers. Sorcerers there can refer to, um, I, th I think, I'm thinking of it, maybe it's this passage, those who deal in drugs and things like that. They all have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. These are the unredeemed. See, the difference between the unredeemed and us is we've been transformed. Yeah, we may still do some of the things that the unredeemed do, but by nature, we're not that. We're different. We're not habitually doing No. And when you do it, you are convicted. You are... The Holy Spirit jabs you. Nails you. And I think the scary thing, and I, you know, I've talked to pastor on this when we play our golf rounds once in a while is how many people in this church aren't going to be in heaven 
I mean, it's a scary thing. I told you, the scariest passage to me in the Bible is not Revelation 20. It's Matthew 7. Did we not? And I've seen him, you know, I've been a Christian long enough to see him come and go. I've seen him come through the door and they go out the door. I've seen people come in here who claim to be Christians, and then after a while, what happens? Well, their life is characterized by one of these things. That's who they are. And they go back to that existence and walk out of the presence of God. And the scary thing is the Bible says, if that is who they really are, they have no part in heaven. There's no part in the eternal state for them. Rather, there in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone forever. Um, you know, and again, you have to think of yourself. You know, think, you know, it's good to examine yourself now and then. Are you really in the faith? Now, you can't go through life always doubting your salvation, but, you know, the Bible says examine yourself. And how do you know you're a Christian? Well, these aren't your characteristic lifestyle. This isn't what you are, you are. When you find somebody who's this habitually, they're not a believer. I've seen them come. I've seen men walk into the singles class and have, I remember one guy had a, he had the biggest Bible I've ever seen, anybody carry. And, uh, but he had this thing about going to X-rated movies and trying to get in bed with every girl he's seen. But he brought a big Bible. He claimed to be a Christian. Is he a Christian? I doubt it. If that's your characteristic lifestyle, if that's what you are, I, I doubt it very much. Um, the unbelievers have their part in the lake which burns with fire and with brimstone. But what do we have? We have the unhindered presence of God. And see, that's something we don't understand either. So you've got to understand, people say, you know, I don't feel close to God. Well, duh, of course you're not going to. Why? We've got the veil of flesh we've got to deal with, worst of all, and we are still have the taint of sin. When we sin, we, we cloud that presence, and of course we're not going to feel close to God. Now, there are some times when you feel closer to God than others, but of course we're not going to enjoy the intimacy we're going to have in the eternal state. And anybody who gets on TV and says you can do that are nuts. You're not going to always be on top of the words. You're not going to always feel close to God. I'll tell you, there are times when I don't feel close to God at all. In fact, I feel he's sort of a long ways away. Why is that? Well, I live in a fallen world. I live in a fallen creation. I live in a body of flesh that is corrupt. And I'm not going to always enjoy that, the blessedness. But there's Sunday when all of that is gone. When there is nothing to hinder me from enjoying his presence. There's no sin. There's no corruption. There's, no, there's nothing between us. And that's when I will really understand what it's like to be redeemed. Inexpressible joy beyond our ability to even think and comprehend. And when you read a passage like this, you know, you, you see these words, but the reality is far beyond what the words have to say. Because you're going to think different. 
You're not going to think like you do now. Whole different world. We'll pick up with nine. We'll do the New Jerusalem tomorrow. Or yeah, not tomorrow, next week. But hopefully, one, one other thing you can do, if you want to do a little bit of homework on Revelation 21 and 22, go home and get a pad of paper and write, make a line down the middle. I have two columns. Write the things that are in the eternal state and the things that are not. That's sort of funny. What you find, well, God is there. Christ is there. The glory is there. But the unbelievable murderers, the daughters, they're not there. Pain is not there. Sorrow is not there. Death is not there. It would be enlightening to just take a list of what is and is not there. Any comments or questions before we close in prayer? Father, thank you for this time and thank you for this brief glimpse into eternity future. Father, our minds can't comprehend the wonders of it. We can't, can't even understand what it's like. We're so bound up in our existence, so used to sin, so used to what we are, that the, the, the ability to even think about it, about being perfect, about being holy, about being beyond the ability to sin is something we can't really relate to. But someday, Father, we will understand. And in light of that, I pray that we would live our lives to please you now, that we may glorify you and honor you. And we just thank you for this time of study in Christ's name. Amen.